This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Have you ever been swept up in powerful emotions that prompted you to do things that damaged your relationships or caused you to feel overwhelmed and lost? Have you often regretted emotional behavior or felt that it cost you your self-respect? Have you thrown away your dreams and acted against your deeply held beliefs because of being emotionally out of control? Most people, at one time or another, have done things they regret under the influence of emotion. But if you feel that you constantly go from one crisis to another because of your emotions and you want to change, Cedar Kunz's work and insights can help you. The mindfulness skills she teaches help you find shelter from the devastation caused by powerful, out-of-control emotions so you can ride out the storm without being harmed. Instead of being swept away, you can take shelter in your own strength and intention through mindfulness. Valeria Tellis interviews Cedar Kunz, an author mindfulness teacher, expert in dialectical behavior therapy, consultant, and speaker. Cedar Coons is an author, mindfulness teacher, and an expert dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, consultant. DBT is an evidence-based treatment for borderline personality disorder, a mental health condition associated with extreme emotions, suicidal behavior, addictions, and relationship turmoil. Throughout her career, Cedar has worked as a DBT psychotherapist, team leader, researcher, trainer, and consultant. She is certified by the Linehan Board of Certification, the gold standard in her field. Cedar's book, The Mindfulness Solution for Intense Emotions, Take Control of BPD with DBT, published by New Harbinger in 2016, offers guidance and stories for people with extreme emotions on how to use mindfulness to reduce suffering and increase quality of life and relationships. Cedar leads a weekly online mindfulness group and in-person retreats for therapists treating borderline clients. She is also a poet and fiction writer. Her new mystery, Murder at Sleeping Tiger, about a murder at a Zen session, will be published by Camel Press in 2022. Cedar lives in the village of Dixon, between Santa Fe and Taos, New Mexico. She is married and has four children and four grandchildren. Meet Cedar at cedarcoons.com. Here is the interview with Cedar Coons. In your own words, who is Cedar Coons? Oh my, who am I? Well, my worldly identity is that I am a 
consultant and psychotherapist and author, and I was a researcher. And my area of expertise is the treatment of intense emotions, especially associated with borderline personality disorder, through the practice of skills developed by Dr. Marsha Linehan in the treatment called dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT. And DBT is a treatment, it's a cognitive behavioral treatment that is based around a core of mindfulness. But who I am is really just another person (laughs) on the journey of this incredible life, trying to experience as much joy and love as I can. And I've been very blessed. I'm now at the stage of my career where I'm doing only a very little psychotherapy, and I'm probably going to retire from that sometime in the next year. And I'm doing a lot of consultation, a lot of writing, including some fiction and poetry, and a fair amount of speaking and leading mindfulness retreats. Wow. It all sounds really wonderful. You know, be exploring these topics in the moment, asking you more questions. My second official question is about the purpose of the human experience. What do you feel that is? Well, you know, I kind of want to go back to the Baltimore catechism of my childhood. I am not a practicing Catholic, but I was in the care of the Catholics for a lot of my childhood. And Honestly, much of it was good, good care. And the purpose of life, according to the Baltimore Catechism, is to know God, to love God, and to serve God. I won't get into my definition of God. It's not the guy with the long white beard. But I do believe that for myself, the purpose of my life is to know that divine inner experience, love that divine inner experience, and serve it. How do you describe what mindfulness is, Sita? Well, in this case, the best definition I've ever heard came from John Kabat-Zinn, who you may be familiar with. He's the one who developed, he wrote Full Catastrophe Living, and he developed Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is an eight-week program to help people reduce stress by practicing mindfulness. And what he said was that mindfulness is the practice of coming into the present moment in order to experience reality as it is, intentionally and without judgment. So I I really like that definition. It kind of says it all. The only word for me would be intention. Yeah, because I tried to explore the topic of free will and choice. So I'm wondering where the intention's coming from? Well, you know, intention is a very important piece of mindfulness. It's about willingly choosing to put your attention in the present moment without judging that moment that it should be different. You know, this is why it's such a useful skill for people who are in the grip of painful emotions because When you are in the grip of a painful emotion, you really don't want to focus on reality as it is in the moment. You want to focus on the thing that's upsetting you. 
problem is the more you focus on what upsets you, the more upset you become. So mindfulness is a really helpful tool to help us stop clinging to our emotions and start embracing or accepting the moment. And it gives us the freedom then to do, to make different choices. And to be able to recognize the options. I love that. I mean, I love that. Absolutely. This is a, sounds to me like a, a very elevated spiritual message or might be the only one really. Do you connect <laughs> uh, mindfulness to mysticism and spirituality? Well, it's interesting. You know, mindfulness is is certainly necessary, I think, to spirituality and mysticism, mysticism, but it's not sufficient for those other pieces. So here's, you know, mindfulness, as it's taught in, in DBT, uh, was developed by Dr. Marshall Linehan, who is a truly, who is a Zen Roshi, actually, and a truly amazing woman. Um, and she took the the tenets of Zen mindfulness and put them and made them into skills, actually specific skills that people can use to be able to regulate their emotions. Kind of amazing. But, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in my own life is that when I am intensely present in the moment, then there is this opening of how incredible the moment is. And my spiritual teacher, his name is Prem Rawat, and I dedicated the book to him. You may have seen that. But he he instructed me in a way of being present with mindfulness and then just having bringing this gentle curiosity to what it was I was experiencing. And right away, I began to experience uh, what, what, what I would consider my definition of mysticism is the omnipresence mm. and indwelling of God. Oh, what is not to love about that? Everything you say. <laughs> it's so Lovely. true. I mean, the, the yeah. thing is, is that there are many people who don't really, they don't come to mindfulness necessarily wanting that. And I, I don't think it it's not my job to voice that on anyone. You know what I mean? In other words, people come to it sometimes and they just want to reduce stress. They just want to get a handle on their anger. They just want to stop being miserable all the time. And so coming into the present moment can be helpful for all of those things. The fact is, though, the more time you spend in the present moment, the more likely you are to contact that. Guess what? You're not really alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You You are actually (laughs) joined from the heart with the universe. And it's pretty incredible. How did you discover mindfulness, Sita? Well, when I was in my early 20s, I discovered my teacher, Prem Rawat, and he taught me how to go within and how to, how to for lack of a better word, how to meditate. And when I was in my 40s, as a second career in my early 40s, I became a clinical social worker, and very shortly after I did that, I began working on an inpatient unit at a VA medical center, you know, where we treat veterans. And I discovered a passion for working with people who were suicidal. 
I know that sounds crazy, but there's a, a reason for that because they're going back um, to my, you know, to my teenage years when a girl who sat behind me in typing class killed herself. And I felt so bad that I hadn't known that she was suffering like that. But at any rate, I got very interested in in the treatment of suicidal individuals. And that's where I discovered Dr. Marsha Linehan. And when I discovered her work, it was just getting published and just becoming kind of an international sensation. I mean, she she really changed the whole treatment of women, especially women with borderline personality disorder. And the core of her treatment is mindfulness. So this is a cognitive behavioral treatment. It is evidence-based, meaning that it has a scientific, there are all kinds of randomized controlled trials, I ran one of them, that show that it's effective. But the core of the treatment is, is mindfulness. So I was totally captivated by it, started, decided to learn as much as I could about it, and very quickly came to realize that it was very, very congruent with my own spiritual practice. Mm. And another question I have about meditation and mindfulness, they go together in a way. We have to learn to meditate in order to be mindful, or it could be the other way around. Oh, and I love that question. You know, the best metaphor I've heard for answering that question is that meditation is like sitting under the waterfall. You you're very sit you sit very still you get very very wet <laughs> you probably also get pretty cold right right <laughs> and mindfulness is like walking through the rainforest you will also get wet <laughs> but you can go about your business you know going from point A to point B and gathering things and so forth whilst being mindful and you know. You, you don't necessarily have to practice meditation. And in fact, many of the people I've taught mindfulness to were just too distraught to sit and meditate. But, they, but gradually with the practice of mindfulness, they became able to sit for ten, five minutes, 10 minutes, eventually 25, 30 minutes. But so you, mindfulness is what you do all day long. And meditation is what you do when you just want to sit down and settle into it. Do you distinguish feelings from emotions, Sida, or they are the same to you somehow? Well, you know, I think feelings include bodily sensations. All emotions, I mean, emotions are very important. You know, we are emotional creatures. We're social creatures and emotions are part of the way we communicate to each other and to ourselves. The problem is, is emotions are not facts, and sometimes we treat them as facts. You know, we say, I feel that I'm threatened, but the question is, are you actually threatened? Or I feel that, I mean, and all emotions do have bodily sensations, but some of us respond more intellectually and say, you know, I think I'm pretty angry, and some of us are more like, no, my gut is really angry. I think feelings and emotions are essentially different aspects of the same thing, which is information that we get deep from deep in our brain, our limbic system, where we come to understand certain kinds of information that we then have to balance with the facts of the situation 
And then from the synthesis of those feelings and emotions and the facts, we can reach wise mind. And wise mind has the best of both emotions and reason and something else. That synthetic quality by synthetic, I mean the, uh, the product of a synthesis, that quality that only we uniquely have. We all, each one of us uniquely has our own wise mind. Mm. So I love that topic <laughs> that in your book. Um, <laughs> it's a great topic, isn't it? Yeah. It is. I mentioned off record, and that is, uh, let me mention, that's chapter three in your book, describes the benefits of the wise mind and the inner wisdom. So I wonder if you also call that intuition. Well, you know, intuition is part of it. Intuition is part of wise mind. It's like wise mind includes a whole array of things that we reach when we are mindful. So in other words, when we are in that present moment, non-judgmentally, intentionally, and we have we pose a question, you know, we ask wise mind. We have an intuition perhaps about something. But then we also check it against our values. We check it against our emotions. We do. We check it against the facts. And we sometimes, and sometimes it's invaluable to even sleep on it or give it time. There's a way in which, and there's research on this, that there's something that goes on in our brains that is a combination of emotions, facts, intuition, prayer, time that creates a synthesis for us that we call wise mind. So while I think I believe in intuition, I don't believe in it unconditionally. Um, I think it has to be intuition is sort of like a wild fairy child, you know, she's beautiful. She's, she can fly, you know, she's amazing, but she needs a, she needs like her older sister, you know, uh-huh. with her you know, uh-huh. at times. Yeah. And her older, wiser sister, perhaps. Yeah. And I'm wondering here, what would that be? What would you call the older, wise, wiser sister? Is that some people call the heart? Wise wise mind, you know, because wise mind, I mean, it's like intuition is sometimes wise mind stands back and says, wow, I, I intuited that. I knew that. But not always, not always. Sometimes our intuition is wrong depending on our learning history. Yeah, that's kind of hard to hear. <laughs> I know, I know. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't like hearing it myself, but myself. But let's say you grew up in a family where you were, you know, you were always put down. You were always ridiculed and teased. And, you know, someone is very praising of you and really sees you. You might have an intuition that you can't trust that person because it's not like your family of origin. True. So another question I have for you is the opening questions about healing. What is healing to you? And what are some of the misconceptions we have about healing? Oh, my. Um, well, healing for me is so much about self-acceptance. It's just being able to embrace yourself as you are. Okay, you are someone who 
just can't seem to shed that last 20 pounds, you know, because you have sciatica, you can't exercise like you would like to, you're eating a healthy diet, you are just not, you look in the mirror and you're, you're not where you would like to be on your healing journey. But you look in the mirror and you say, I love you. I accept you. In this moment, in this day, you know, I am going to embrace you and accept you as you are. That doesn't mean you don't ask yourself to be as skillful as possible, you know, to get the exercise you can get, to push, uh, to, to do your, what your physical therapist is suggesting you need to do for your sciatica, to, to eat a balanced um, diet, not take in more calories than you, you know, should, but that you accept where you are in the great scheme of things. You know, as someone who is, I'm 70 this year, and I'm actually loving being 70. It's wonderful. And one of the things that comes with 70s, you look in the mirror and you say, wow, you know, I've got a lot of lines on my face. My hair is gray. I'm, my neck is not the way I'd like it to be. But, you know, I look in my eyes and I see, I see so much beauty there. And I feel a lot of love. So I think healing is about self-acceptance. And, you know, many of the people that, that I work with and I've worked with over the years hate, hate themselves or have hated themselves. And I, I'm like a absolutely refuse to put up with that. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> because that is inconsistent with healing. And so, you know, some one of the one of the beliefs that people have, I think, about healing that's unfortunate is that you have to drive yourself. You have to push yourself. So, well, you do, you do have to try, you do have to make a lot of effort, but there is also so much grace associated with effort. You know, if you think of grace as the unmerited favor of the divine, (laughs) you know, that somehow when we really work toward healing, there is, there is some kind of glide path that can it's not like it's a glide path that takes you away from any pain or any suffering or any of that. But when you radically accept yourself, a lot gets easier to healing, I think. What do you love most about being in a human body? That's a great question. I love being able to appreciate the incredible nature of creation. You know, the the beauty of the sunrise, the breeze, the trees, the birds. I'm a bird watcher. I love birds. Um, the sounds of, you know, of the day, my, my, the feel warmth of the, my kitty cat on my lap, holding my husband's hand, listening to my grandchildren play. Um, just the sensual experience of being part of this, I mean, there's a lot of suffering in this world, a lot, and I am very, very aware of the suffering. But to me, the joy of the beauty, the joy and beauty of creation outweighs the suffering. And that's saying a lot because there is a lot of suffering. So I'm grateful to be a witness to, to the majesty of creation. And I love the way you said earlier, too, about looking at yourself in the mirror and seeing the beauty and in your eyes and the love. That's a beautiful inspiration for all of us, not just women, but all of us human beings, if we could see that that beauty. 
And my last warm-up question is about freedom. What is your vision or understanding of liberation, Sita? Well, you know, I, I understand about the idea that, you know, people, let me just say that I don't, I'm not a big believer in uh, things that aren't empirically <laughs> um, proven. So I'm so, so for example, even though I have great respect for the traditions who have res, who believe in um, reincarnation, it's not something that I find particularly that I want to believe in. So I don't buy into the idea that you know the real liberation is not ever having to become incarnated again. Um, if that's what you are, but to be me for me being free means being mindful. It means being intentional. It means making, not being, allowing my emotions to run my life or to run away with me and make me, you know, say things that I have to apologize for, that I regret or do things that hurt other people or hurt me. Being able to make choices in my life from a place of awareness and, and presence in the moment and and from my value system that's freedom and i'm i'm not perfectly free i make mistakes i do things i wish i hadn't done but the more i practice i'm getting so much better you know and it just feels like by and large i am very very free uh but if i had a choice You know, I, I always have admired the Bodhisattva vow. Do you know that vow? Yeah, the, the, the vow that I'll, yeah, that I'll, I'll just keep coming back until all sentient beings are free. But, you know, I don't, since I don't believe in reincarnation, <laughs> it's a little bit weird. But, but I think right now, people who truly are Bodhisattvas, there are lots of them on this earth. And they are laboring all over in so many different places of this world. And I just want to say, you know, hail to them. You know, I want to say uh, love to them because that if, if there were such a, if there were such, if that vow really made sense to me, then I would make that vow because what could be more meaningful than that? That's how they say, I mean, this, it is a belief system that I'm not free unless everyone is free. And I love the way you say that freedom and You connect freedom to mindfulness and presence, and you sound free to me. <laughs> It's an energetic resonance um, that comes across. So thank you for being you, Sita. It, it really transcends words. It can be felt. That's interesting. The way you speak, like my body, it's, uh, it resonates with the body and, and the mind too. Of course, everything that's here, present. You wrote the book, The Mindfulness Solution for Intense Emotions. Take control of borderline personality disorder with DBT. Talk to me about the inspiration and the main intention of writing your book. I wrote this book for people who suffer with intense emotions, not just the feelings, but the, the kind of wreckage that that can create in your life, in relationships and with your work and just with your self-esteem. Many people who suffer from intense emotions want to don't want to go on living, want to die. Uh, my own sister took her life, and she suffered from intense emotions. 
And she was also an incredible artist and just a beautiful soul. So I was inspired to write this book for to, to make this particular part of DBT, which, as I mentioned earlier, is an evidence-based treatment for borderline personality disorder, to make this, this part of the treatment more uh, accessible for people. Because a lot of times, mindful, you say mindfulness and people's eyes just glaze over. They think, oh, yeah, mindfulness, <laughs> namaste, you know, whatever. But I, yeah. I, so the, the book is full of a lot of stories, basically. It's lots and lots of stories and, and exercises and explanations. And I just wanted to make it accessible for people because some of the people I've known in my life who've had these really intense emotions and have suffered so much are some of the bravest and most courageous people I've known. And I wanted to reach them and offer something that, that might be of help. And I wonder why some people, some of us, don't come to realize that, that we need help with our emotions, our intense emotions. Do you have some ideas? Because I do have some people around me who suffer from that, but I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think... As children, we're really often taught that our emotions are not okay, but we aren't ta taught anything more about them except just like, you know, push it down, stuff it, make it go away. And so there are all kinds of ways that people learn how to do that, whether it's with drugs or alcohol or self-harm behavior or thinking about suicide or by, you know, eating or shopping or what are the, all these things that people try to do to try to make their emotions behave. And the, really what emotions are is they are their messages, you know, that we have to, you know, look at the message and say, okay, what do I need to know? You know, what do I need to take from this message? And I think emotions are, you know, I don't know what it's like in Brazil. Um, Cause I've never been to Brazil, always wanted to go, but in, in, You know, Northern European countries and in the U.S., emotions are very frowned upon. And and yet emotions are a huge, important part of the, how we negotiate this world. And if we don't have emotions, we actually can't negotiate this world. So it's a question of like, but, it, but, we, but on the other hand, when you think your emotions are everything and that they tell you the truth about everything, that also gets you into a world of trouble. So it's about knowing, knowing how your emotions work, understanding your emotions and being able to always have that wise big sister, you know, or big brother or mother, you know, who, you know, that part of us, it's in us, it's not outside of us, that understands that emotions are only part of the picture. There's more. There's actual wisdom. That makes me think about balance and harmony. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would you say that, Cedar, that not that balance is a destination, I don't see it as a destination, but is it in a way knowing how to dance, that dance of life and always knowing how to go back to that home, per Absolutely. Say. Maybe that's uh, the word. Yeah. Well, that's where, you know, dialectical behavior therapy is, you know, it's got dialectical in the title and that's dialectics are all about understanding. You know, if you think of the yin yang symbol where you have, you know, the spot of light in the circle of dark and the spot of dark in the circle of light, you know, it's the whole idea that the entire Oak tree is contained in the acorn, you know, that things are neither 
all black or all white there nor are they gray you know right, it's right. like and it's all moving it's all moving and changing and transforming and there the only place to stand is in the center and so you know dialectics are all about the movement well intellectually it would be between thesis you know one idea and then the opposite of that idea would struggle with each other you know like is it a is it a candy mint or is it a breath mint? You know? <laughs> uh, you know, and they struggle and, oh, it's both. Oh, it's both. But dialectics is about being in harmony, as you said, being in harmony with something that is neither right nor wrong, neither good nor bad, uh, just something that just is. And un- making your way through that path with an awareness of the impermanence and the movement. I mean, I can get pretty, get, get pretty mystical about dialectics, but oh, I love that. it's actually a Western <laughs> idea, interestingly okay. enough. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier when I asked you the first question about being a poet and fiction writer as well, and I have your bio here. So you wrote the book title, uh, the fiction one, Murder at Sleeping Tiger. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> I guess that's the question. <laughs> well... You know, I think a really important part of life is having fun. Yes. And, you know, uh, one of the ways that I love to have fun is with words. I love to play with words. I like to write poems. I like to write songs. I like to write, you know, uh, haiku, you know, limericks. And I like to and I like to tell stories. When I retired from doing, I actually don't do the practice of DBT anymore. I just consult to teams that do it. Uh, and part of that is because it's a very demanding um, practice and you have to do it in a team. And I now live in a remote part of northern New Mexico. Um, and, you know, I spend a lot of time in the garden. I spend a lot of time, um, you know, walking in the woods and it's just not, it's not it, compatible with doing DBT. But when I did retire from that, I decided I, I thought it would be fun to write a novel. And I've always loved mysteries. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like novels of all kinds, but I, I never thought that I would be able to write like a literary novel just right off the bat. So I thought, well, I'll try my hand at a mystery. So I wrote a mystery about something I know about, which is Sleeping Tiger in the book is a retreat center. Yeah. <laughs> it's a murder at a retreat. Wow. And I know something about that because I've led, you know, almost 20 retreats and um, well, actually more than that. And and so, I, you know, I did it. And, and it, as I was doing it, I was like, why am I having somebody get murdered at one of these yeah. things? You know, that <laughs> yeah. seemed a little bit, a little bit weird. <laughs> but... You know, it gave me an opportunity to talk about, quite frankly, the dark side of spirituality, which isn't really part of spirituality, but it goes along with wherever human beings are gathered together. There's always, I mean, we live in a dualistic world and there's always darkness. And it was actually kind of fun (laughs) to highlight, you know, some of the things that you see in spiritual groups, such as well, spiritual materialism, ambition, sexual exploitation, <laughs> greed. And it was kind of, I um, mean, in my book, The Mindfulness Solution for Intense Emotions, in the back, 
there's a sec there's a, a chapter on looking for a teacher and it talks about you know some of the risks involved in spiritual practice and so in a way i think maybe this novel grew out of that and it was made but it was mainly about having fun and i've had i've had a blast it wasn't much fun marketing i did finally sell it wasn't much fun marketing but it's going to come out early next year and uh i think i think and i'm already writing another one Ah, oh, wow. <laughs> Wonderful. So they, I got I got contracted to write a total of three. Um, so I'm on the second one now. I love when you talk about um, fun, this idea. I mean, that goes along with freedom, doesn't it? I think that's yes. what I felt with your energies too, the way you speak and all this lightness, playfulness to it. Um, and that comes across as freedom or being free. So we're almost at the end. I have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Would you like to add anything else, Sita, or read a a passage in your book? Um, I'm certainly willing to read a passage from the book if... Yes. If you think that Please. would be good. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And it's and it's from that chapter you highlighted. Ah, yeah, chapter four. I love <laughs> so that. you'll be happy. You'll I be happy that. about that. <laughs> it's about um it's you know, I, I as I said, uh, the wise mind is central. And it this so, so this this section is uh called it, the solution, wise mind. Wise people have been talking about something like wise mind for millennia. Some of its aliases are the soul, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the conscience, Buddha nature, gnosis, the Atman, the heart of hearts, the true self. According to countless sources, it lives inside of everyone. And just as inner wisdom is called by many names, it can be reached by many different methods. The genius of the DBT skill of wise mind is that it demystifies the process into a discrete skill to be practiced and eventually mastered. The skill of wise mind can be used for decisions as elementary as, should I have a glass of wine? To those as complex as, how can I live serenely in a world where there is so much suffering? To use this skill, ask your wise mind a question and listen carefully for the answer. Asking is the easy part. The hard part is heeding the answer when it comes. I love the way you write it a lot. I love everything about you, Sita. Thank you so much. <laughs> Boy, I'm, I'm just feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm on cloud nine here. <laughs> yeah, you're beautiful, really beautiful, and you know it. So my last question to you, what is another word for life? Breath. Breath is another, is one of, is sort of the royal road to mindfulness. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? I think the hardest, hardest thing for me is in Zen, we, there are these great vows and we, we vow to renounce anger, ignorance, and, and greed. And we vow to renounce them and that and we also say and they arise constantly and i don't think of myself as having a lot of greed uh or necessarily a lot of ignorance although i certainly do have some ignorance about the way some people live and i don't understand certain kinds of there's certain cultural things that i'm ignorant about but i boy boy do i ever have a lot of anger and i think that's been my whole life i've struggled with you know i have a really 
I have a, a very driving temperament, a very strong temperament. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm blessed with a lot of energy. And I realize how, you know, anger in some ways can be such a positive force because it can it can bring about so much change. But anger is also very corrosive. So it's the struggle to and, and hardened anger becomes hate. And, you know, hate is so horrible and we have so much of it in this world. And it's so I think the hardest thing I struggle with is how constantly I notice anger and aversion and dislike and even sometimes hate arising and how even when I'm hating the most hateable things, how destructive that is. So that's the hardest. That's that's my that's my the, th- the hardest thing for me to work on. So my last question is: What are three things about life you wish everyone to experience before they lose the body? I think every human being deserves to experience that they are deeply, deeply loved by not only their fam their family member, let's say, or their or their friend, but by God whatever you want to call that, the energy that moves the universe, that the energy that creates the universe loves them. And I also would like every person to experience deep gratitude for some moments of their lives. The gratitude is so healing. It's, you know, keeping a gratitude journal is supposedly as good as any antidepressant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then sense. I guess finally <laughs> is that everyone would experience being treated with dignity and respect. And even as they, you know, lie on a sidewalk amongst strangers, you know, that they are treated with dignity and respect because They are the child of God. Thank you so much again, Cedar, for being you exactly the way you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's beautiful. So before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Um, best place is to look at cedarcoons.com. And uh, you can contact me through that. You can get my, buy my book there. My book's also available wherever fine books are sold. And it's now available in audiobook as well, although I recommend the hard copy because it's got pictures. Yeah. <laughs> And, but yeah, cedarcoons.com. That, that's, that's the way to go. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. Thank you so much again. And okay. we'll talk soon. Thank you, Valeria. What a pleasure it's been speaking with you. Same here. Take care, Cedar. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Cedar Coons and her work, please visit cedarcoons.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.